Hello, Katie. Hey, what an indescribable week it's been. Yeah. Yeah, and it's pretty difficult to know how to make a podcast, but we're here and we're going to give it a go. So we are recording this on Monday afternoon and uh, it's still pretty difficult to process what's happened in Ukraine over the past week. There is a war right here in Europe and countless lives have been upended. So many things have just been overturned in the past few days, not just in Ukraine, but also across its borders, like everything from from Germany and like how Europe's biggest power thinks about itself and its military responsibilities after World War II to how the EU thinks about its role in the world. So many things have just suddenly changed. Yeah. And I know a lot of you come to this podcast to hear about the stories that aren't dominating the news cycle at the moment, but we really didn't feel like we could do that with this story. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is just too important to take our eyes off it. So if you are like many struggling with anxiety and trying to limit your news intake about Ukraine, then you might want to skip this episode and dive into our back catalogue from somewhat simpler times. But otherwise, stick with us. Uh, This show is going to be a bit different to usual. We've got no good week, bad week. We're going to try and be a bit reflective about what's happening. And yeah, just keep in mind that this is recorded on Monday and it's not going to be full of breaking news. So first of all, we're going to be having a chat with our producer, Wojciech Oleksiak, in Warsaw, just to check in about how things feel a little bit different watching this conflict unfold from there than it does over here, further to the west in Europe. After that, we're going to be bringing you an excerpt from a book called A Loss by the Ukrainian writer Olesya Kromejchuk. The book is part memoir, part essay, and is a story of a life taken so suddenly, the life of her brother who died fighting on the front line for the Ukrainian armed forces in 2017. And it looks at the effect that loss and war has on so many people stretching far away from the war zone itself. Alessia took time to record an extract, especially for this episode, and we are incredibly grateful to her for doing that during this horrible week. That's coming up later, but first, we're now going to speak to Wojciech. Hey Wojciech, how are you doing? Hey, yeah, hanging in. It's been pretty all-consuming over here in my house, um, but I imagine it's a different level of all-consuming for people like you that live in a country that borders Ukraine. Can you tell us a bit about what the past week has been like for you? Well, so so it's been, I think, more than a week. We were pretty stressed for the last two weeks, I think. I actually wanted to sort of warn you that I think that there's something really big coming and that it's not going in the right direction. But then I, I was sort of auto-censoring myself because I, I didn't want to be this paranoid Pole who's always have something weird to say about Russia. And then actually, as you remember, I just like emailed you the day before the actual invasion that I think it's just gotten to a point where it's just they're invading today or tomorrow. And, and when I woke up, I'm waking up very early because I have a little kid and I saw the news. And when you see the news that there is a war right next to you and that this war might very easily move into your country like because that's what history teaches us then you just start asking yourself questions like is the place where you live is it going to be livable in a week in two weeks in a month or like is it even worth staying here in the long term especially if you have kids is this a place where your family will be safe when you're gone or you know when you're not able to take care of them 
Obviously, on Thursday, we were absolutely pessimistic because we remembered annexation of Crimea. I've talked to a lot of Crimean Tatars and I have a lot of Ukrainian friends who are advocating for bigger sanctions then and just the response was so meager. And I thought, oh my God, like if this is going to repeat, then I was just completely lost and didn't know what to do. And you know, on Thursday, the things weren't looking great. There was just a huge squabble in the EU. Italy was having some ridiculous requests of like not banning luxury goods. Belgium wanted to trade their diamonds. And when you see things like that and you, you understand that the bombs are falling 300 kilometers from you and nobody is paying attention and understands the seriousness of the situation, then we were just really scared. I mean, I've never been so scared, not in terms of like, you know, <laughs> being scared by a stressful situation, but like being scared by a long-term question like, what do we do now? One thing we knew was that Ukrainians would never let it go without a fierce fight. And that was a ray of hope from day one, actually. You kind of broke my heart earlier when you told us that over the past couple of weeks, you'd started drafting a couple of messages in our WhatsApp group about how worried you felt about what Putin was planning. And you, you didn't send them because you thought you might look a bit paranoid. Does it feel like Central and Eastern Europeans who've been warning about this for literally years just felt like their fears weren't being taken seriously further to the West. We've been telling this for a long time that Putin and his milieu, like his this council of his, they aren't different people than the ones who did all the terrible things mid last century. And this is why there is always this lack of trust. And these are all former KGB agents and FSB agents. And when you think about what it takes to be a KGB agent and an officer, you quickly realize that these people might not take into account all the elements and all the factors that we would take into account. And so when we saw what's going on, you know, the concentration of arms and of soldiers and, and you know, military equipment around the borders, especially when they entered Belarus, which was to us like a, a red flag that this is, this is it, like they're going to invade. You still have this hope that you're being paranoid, but yeah, but then it just happens and all hell breaks loose. And we were actually very seriously worried about the fact that we might be on the verge of a bigger conflict because obviously I think, you know, if Russia attacked NATO, then anything could happen. So despite some initial hesitancy and arguments over stupid things like luxury handbags, the EU has actually come together and come up with quite a united and like surprisingly strong response to Russia, I think. I think it's taken people back a bit. Does that give you some hope and did that surprise you? Yeah, to be honest, I'm very surprised and only in a positive way. But also we have to underline this as many times as possible. The fact that you had the time to just get together and take all those necessary decisions is only thanks to Ukrainians who actually stopped a Russian army because if it wasn't for them, the invasion would be over in two days, just as it was planned then there wouldn't be time for them to realize what's going on and to react accordingly. So yes, I'm very happy. The things we saw in the last three days are just, I would never believe that such a thing is possible. And, you know, if you think about how much time that would take to take all the decisions in normal circumstances, that would take probably decades. And now within three days, we have all those drastic changes of whole politics that were shaped for decades, like, you know, Germany is just a different country now. Switzerland somewhat decided not to be so neutral. Same for Sweden, Finland. 
So, you know, these are things that have this sort of uh, history changing vibe to it. And it's much more than I expected. And it's much, much more than I expected on Thursday morning. So it just gives us hope that maybe this conflict is actually as much as it's the worst thing that happened, you know, in our lives, probably. Maybe there's going to be something good at the very end of this whole thing. I know that something that you've been struggling with is the fact that the Polish government has been really humane so far in its response to this crisis, which it wasn't when it came to welcoming refugees arriving via the Belarusian border, like who were Africans and Afghans, like let's be blunt, black and brown people. And this is something we haven't just seen in Poland, but across the West, this instinct to be like, wow, this time it's a war involving people who look like us or even... This time it's a war in a civilized country, I saw that on the news, which is, of course, a, a horrific thing to say. It must be a difficult thing to confront, though, just how jarringly different Poland's response has been to this compared to the Belarus border crisis. So it's all really very, very perplexing. And I, I was very angry when the situation on the border with Belarus was handled the way it was handled. But also I really hope, I do hope that this thing now teaches us something and maybe I really hope that people will notice that this war is very close to our home and it's it's actually very dangerous for us. But then all the other wars and all the other refugees are exactly the same people, probably running away from exactly the same problems that now our friends from Ukraine have. And with all the tyranny of media these days and all the propaganda that we have in Poland and with all the false information that was spread out then, maybe now people will understand what does it mean to run away from a conflict like this. And this is going to bring some change because it is uplifting to see how many people are involved in trying to provide help for Ukrainians. And I can see why it would be different another time there is a huge conflict here or somewhere else. Well, thank you so much, Wojciech, for joining us today. We are, yeah, we're really grateful for you for sharing your thoughts and giving us your perspective. Um, I believe you're also heading to the border this week to help. And yeah, wish you best of luck with that trip. Thank you. I'll keep you posted. We wanted to give a big thank you to the latest listeners to support this podcast, Josephine and Leslie Farnsworth, as well as Valerie Vargo for increasing her monthly donations. You are all incredibly kind people. Thank you so much. Normally at this point in the show, we ask listeners that if they have a bit of spare cash to consider sending it our way so that we can keep making this show. Frankly, it feels right now like there are a lot of people who need that money much more than we do. So we wanted to suggest instead that you donate to the Kiev Independent, who have been doing phenomenal work keeping us updated in English with the latest news from the ground in Ukraine. They have a Patreon page, so you can support them there. It's patreon.com forward slash Independent. The link is in the show notes, where you'll also find a link to information about other ways that you can help Ukrainians from abroad. There's also a GoFundMe campaign to keep Ukrainian media up and running. It was set up by a consortium of media organizations like The Fix and our partners at Are We Europe. And they are aiming to help media relocate, set up back offices and continue their operations from neighboring countries when necessary. We'll also provide a link to that campaign in our show notes. Watching this conflict unfold from comfortable, peaceful Western Europe, I think it's been very easy for us to forget that Ukraine has in fact been dealing 
with a conflict with Russia, or at least with separatists supported by Russia, for many years in its east. A conflict that, shamefully, we largely stopped talking about over here to the west because it felt like a frozen conflict. But of course it hasn't felt like that for Ukrainians. And this week we wanted to reflect in some way on what these years of conflict have felt like on a human level. Olesia Kremechuk is a historian of Eastern and Central Europe, she's a writer and a theatre maker, and she's currently the director of the Ukrainian Institute in London. In 2017, Alessia's brother Volodymyr was killed fighting on the front line in Donbass. And last year she published a very beautiful book reflecting on his death and her very private experience of this collective conflict. The book is moving and incredibly thoughtful and even funny in places, and it's hard to find a more human reminder of the costs of conflict. Alessia is, like so many Ukrainians abroad, protesting every day at the moment, so we're very honoured that she took the time to read us an excerpt this week. Here, reading from her book, A Loss, is Olesia Kromechuk. A Pair of Boots, Part 1 For months, my Facebook page was advertising dating sites, maternity clothes, theatre performances and army boots, size 8. The algorithms must have thought that I was a single woman of childbearing age, keen on theatre and army outfits. They must have also thought that I have pretty big feet. I didn't blame Facebook. I had spent days looking at army surplus sites, hunting for a pair of army boots. Following my brother's request, I was determined to get a pair that would be lightweight, waterproof, black and in size 8. I soon realized that army surplus sites sell just that, surplus supplies. That meant that the most popular sizes, eight included, were very hard to find. I considered getting police boots because they were super light and I could get them in the right size and color, but they were not waterproof. I found a pair of army boots that were waterproof, black and size eight, but they were heavy and the last thing you want when crossing the muddy black earth fields of eastern Ukraine is boots that weigh a ton even before the mud piles onto them. After a week or so of inspecting hundreds of pairs of army boots on my laptop screen and not finding what I needed, I started to despair. Every day I checked the main sites to see if they had any new additions, but with no luck. And then, suddenly, there they were. A shining pair of Gore-Tex pro-combat British army boots. I couldn't believe my eyes. They were waterproof, black, a bit on the heavy side, but most importantly, size 8. But wait, what's that? The label said size 8 medium. Oh God, I thought, is medium good? What are the other options? I couldn't face to give them up and continue to look for another pair. Luckily, there were no other options available anyway, and I thought that medium must be better than large or small, so I bought them. The special bonus for all my hard work was the fact that they were not pre-owned, like most other pairs I looked at. They were brand new. I was very happy. My brother would have a brand new pair of proper army boots, the envy of the whole company and even the whole battalion. No one else would have such fine boots. My order arrived pretty quickly. I was glad to learn that the boots were not too heavy. I gave them a wipe, stroked them gently, whispered good luck to them and put them back into the shoebox. 
and put the box in the bag. The bag already contained a full army uniform, a couple of army caps, army socks, t-shirts, a lightweight waterproof suit, a lightweight jacket and trousers, a helmet liner, a bivy bag, a genuine British Army issue poncho, a few other pieces of army clothing, as well as medical supplies, a sealock sachet, the stuff that stops heavy bleeding, water purifying tablets, dry food survival packs, and lots of chocolates and flapjacks. Basically, all the stuff that the Ukrainian army didn't bother to give to its soldiers. There was also an MP3 player with my favorite music. I hadn't been asked for it. I put it there on my own initiative. My mom added a few little crosses on leather threads. Maybe he'll give them out to his friends and keep one for himself, she said. Apart from the boots, which were a total pain in the neck, none of these items were particularly hard to get. My friend, Kolya, had made a list of the necessary items and the companies that supplied them. Other friends who had been volunteering for some time suggested a few websites that sold these items. So the process of obtaining all of these army supplies was remarkably straightforward. There was only one article that evaded me. I was also hoping to get a bulletproof vest. But that task proved to be beyond my ability. Bulletproof jackets are predictably not so easy to find online. But all in all, looking at the large khaki bags stuffed with all these items, I felt quite proud of myself for accomplishing my own military mission, getting everything necessary to keep my brother warm, dry, and safe. My mother and I took the bag to a man with a van, who would then transport it to Ukraine and pass it on to Kole in Lviv. Before the war, I had only encountered the services provided by the man with a van when my parents sent gifts to my numerous cousins in the Carpathian Mountains, and they, in return, sent us dried mushrooms, honey, and all those other delicacies from the old country one misses one gets a bit, when one gets a bit homesick. I wondered how the man with the van felt about expanding his trade to include army provisions. Maybe he liked it that he could do his bid for the country this way. He certainly didn't charge as much for the bag. Maybe he felt inadequate that rather than buying these items for himself and driving his van to the front line, he carried on his job as a messenger between peace and war. Maybe he hadn't even given it any thought at all. Not everyone thinks of this war. And maybe that's fine. When we handed our bag over to him on a sunny afternoon on a West London side street, we felt like we were letting go of someone we might never see again. A Pair of Boots, Part 2 The bag lying on Masha's kitchen floor in Kyiv was the same one I had packed on my own kitchen floor nearly two years earlier in London. I didn't recognize many items. The uniform was not the British Army one I had bought. It was made of thin, plastic-like material. Some of the t-shirts were the ones from my shopping list, but they no longer smelled of the warehouse as they had when I got them in the post. Now they smelled of earth and damp. The helmet liner was there, the same one I had bought, except now it had a hole and several brownish stains on it. 
Some of the leather crosses were still there. Perhaps he didn't offer them to his friends. Or maybe they felt that if the bulletproof jackets can't protect them, nothing can. There were some condoms in a small pocket. I hadn't thought of those when I was packing the bag all those months ago. There was a mobile phone. It had no lock, no password. I didn't know if I should open the text messages, pictures, videos. They didn't belong to me. Yet I also felt that they could tell me something. I really needed clues about his life at the front. I wanted to see if he had kept the messages I had sent him. But I knew he wouldn't have liked it if I checked his phone without his permission when he was alive. Why should I not require permission now that he's dead? Eventually, I decided to take a quick look at the phone. The temptation was too strong to resist. I picked it up from the kitchen worktop where it had been charging and noticed that the phone was now asking me for a password. I couldn't understand how that had happened. Only an hour or so earlier, when I had turned it on, no password was required. There was something a little spooky about this. I put the phone down again and turned it off. Sometime later, however, my curiosity got the better of me and I turned the phone back on. No password was required again. Really? As I was thinking about what to do, the request for the password reappeared. Now that was too much for my tired brain. I had a glass of water and decided that when things get too uncanny, the only way to deal with them is with help of reason. I turned the phone off and on again, and as expected, for the first few minutes, it didn't ask for a password. That was my window of opportunity, the first few minutes before the password protection program kicked in. I was still uncomfortable about reading his texts and viewing his pictures. So I put the phone to the side and decided I would take a proper look at it later. There was also a folder with some paperwork, a brief handwritten autobiography, some military documents, vouchers for free train journeys for soldiers, most of them unused, a list of the next of kin, some pictures of the sun and rainbows drawn by school kids for soldiers. And there was a book with pages missing, a weird fantasy book. I guess weird fantasy is what one needs when weird reality gets too much. And then I saw them, the Gore-Tex pro-combat British army boots, size eight. They were still in very good shape, although not brand new anymore. I guess now you would qualify them as pre-owned. They were covered in mud the fertile, sticky Ukrainian black earth. I took them into the hall of Masha's flat. The hall was covered in other people's shoes. Some were cleaner, newer, and more colorful than others. The pair I held in my lap stood sharply apart from the rest. There, among the civilian shoes, this army gear looked like it came from another planet. I cried for the first time since I received the bag. My tears started to roll down my cheeks and onto the shoes. I took a cloth and started to clean them, gently, like I had a home after I had received them in the post. First, I removed the mud from the soles. Then I cleaned the rest of each shoe and gave them a shine. I stroked them like I had two years ago and whispered to them, Good luck. You can keep someone else dry and warm now.
Thank you so much to Alessia for joining us this week. Her book is called A Loss. It is out now. And it's actually the first of a few different things that we wanted to recommend this week. Uh, in place of our usual isolation inspiration segment, we just wanted to, yeah, like celebrate a tiny fraction of Ukraine's phenomenal cultural output. Uh, Dominic, I think you've had one song specifically on repeat this week. I have, yeah. Um, once again, I have become obsessed with the winning song from 2016's Eurovision Song Contest. I think it might be my favorite Eurovision song of all time. It's called 1944, and it was written and performed by the Ukrainian singer Jamala. It's a song that I have actually talked about before on the show, sorry for repeating myself, but it's about the deportation of the Crimean Tatars in 1944, an event that's often described as cultural genocide, and it was enacted by the Soviet government under the orders of Joseph Stalin. Jamala is a Crimean Tatar herself, and the song is inspired by her great-grandmother who lost her daughter while being deported to Central Asia. You may remember that it was a bit of a controversial entry for Eurovision at the time because it was seen as political by some, um, something that Eurovision songs are not meant to be. On the surface, the song is about a historical event. She was singing it during the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict and only a few years after the annexation of Crimea by Russia, an event that once again led to repression of the Crimean Tatars, most of whom refused to accept the annexation. And I think in light of what is happening now, I'm even more pleased that Eurovision decided not to ban this song from the competition, despite the allegations of being political in nature. And I'm so pleased it won. I've played the song an unhealthy number of times the last few days, and I find it incredibly moving, especially now. It shows what Eurovision does at its best, exposing us to each other's cultures and stories through catchy songs and songs that are sometimes shit, but sometimes really well written and really well performed as is the case with 1944. When strangers are coming They come to your house They kill you all and say We're not guilty Not guilty you may have heard also that Russia have now been banned from this year's Eurovision, and it's probably not the decision that's going to make Putin withdraw, but it does, to me, feel like the right decision, even if I am sad for the many Russians, particularly queer Russians, who do not support Putin and do not support this invasion, and for whom Eurovision is a moment where they can feel connected to the wider European community. So, yeah, I feel mixed, but I think it's the right decision. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We were chatting about it last night at dinner with a couple of friends from different European countries and they felt quite strongly that this wasn't the right move and it's wrong to make musicians kind of pay the price of this. On the other hand, it's important that Eurovision doesn't like accidentally give Russia a platform and normalise their presence in an international competition like this. It's, it's a tricky one. I think we all know who's going to win this year. Latvia. <laughs> <laughs> What Ukrainian uh, culture would you like to talk about, Katie? Yeah, uh, I started reading Grey Bees by Andrei Kurkov, the novelist. Uh, some of you might know him for Death and the Penguin, which was a huge bestseller back in the sort of early noughties. Um, but this week I started Grey Bees, which is a more recent novel of his from a couple of years ago. And it is a slightly absurd, darkly funny novel about people who refused to leave their homes when the conflict broke out in Donbass and eastern Ukraine back in 2014. 
Most people left either to safer parts of Ukraine at the time or abroad. But this story follows two holdouts, uh, two men who are getting a little bit older. And they used to be kind of frenemies at school. So they had this quite prickly relationship. And uh, one of these men, Sergei, is an enthusiastic beekeeper who finally decides to leave home so that he can take his bees on a, a kind of holiday. It's a really great book. And the translation feels really sharp and funny. Uh, yeah, I really recommend it. It didn't really feel appropriate to have a happy ending this week, even if we all really need it. But we do have something that should be a bit cheering. Our producer, Katz Laszlo, has put together a montage of some of the protests that took place around the world this past weekend. Something to remind us that there is a huge mass of people who are taking to the streets to protest against the tyrannical, deranged behavior of Vladimir Putin and to embolden our leaders to do everything they can to protect the people of Ukraine from his violence. Here is what it sounded like this week on the streets of Europe. Ankara, Minsk, Tallinn, Helsinki, Paris, Vienna, London, Nicosia, Warsaw, Berlin, Lisbon... Barcelona and Rome. Some of these sounds were recorded by friends of this podcast. Thank you so much for sending them in.
I am away for a few weeks. I'm going to be making theatre in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, probably without Wi-Fi. So I'm not going to be around on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I'll miss you guys. But uh, you'll probably not miss me, Katie. Of course I will miss you, Dominic. Um, yeah, so it's it's slightly unclear, listeners, whether you will hear from us next week. We were scheduled to take a break from the show, but obviously with what is happening right now on this continent, we might well still be appearing in your feeds next week. In the meantime, stay safe, everyone. I know we have listeners in Ukraine, so to you, we are thinking of you and get in touch if there's anything we can do to help. Thank you for listening this week. We were produced by me, Katie Lee, with Wojciech Alexiak and Kat Slaslo. And we are part of the Are We Europe audio family. You can find more continental podcasts at the link in the show notes. Playing us out this week is the Ukrainian Village Voices Choir. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.